0: So Money Episode Five Sixty Two. Rachel Schneider, co-author of the Financial Diaries.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a thirty-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking For ways to save on gas or double your double coupons?
0: Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life. Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Farnish Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. What happens when you have no savings and you suddenly incur a huge expense like a medical bill or a car repair? Nearly half of Americans would have trouble paying for a $400 surprise expense because we just don't have the rainy day savings. And what happens if you work in retail and your weekly paycheck fluctuates because your boss changes your hours every week? In the meantime, your monthly bills are steady. The topic today is financial fragility, and we're going to explore this with Rachel Schneider. She's the co-author of the new book, The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. She and her co-author take a deep dive into how over 200 low- and middle-income families in the country spend, earn, and save Over the course of a year? How do they deal with inconsistent paychecks? How do they cope with emergency costs and other financial ups and downs? A little bit more about Rachel. She's the Senior Vice President at the Center for Financial Services Innovation. She's an expert on financial health, and her career began as an investment banker at Merrill Lynch. Rachel and I talk about the forces leading to income volatility and financial fragility. I also wonder how a household earning six figures still has money troubles, as she discovered, and ways households are overcoming financial fragility on their own. Here's Rachel Schneider. Rachel Schneider, welcome to So Money. By the way, you're the first interview that I am conducting since my maternity leave. So (laughs) you are my comeback interview. Oh, I'm so excited about that.
1: I'm excited to be here and congratulations. That's just fantastic. Thank you.
0: I've been looking forward to this interview. You know, I think uh, what your new book has to say is so important. And the work that you do at the Center for Financial Services Innovation is so critical, especially now talking about income volatility. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, whether it's political and economic. And so let's start right off the bat talking about financial volatility as you define it. And why these days it's such a a growing issue?
1: Sure, and sure, and it's a big question. So, um, I should say, um, you know, the work I'm doing is really comes out of a research project um, called the U.S. Financial Diaries. And what we did is we worked really closely with 235 families to understand their life over the course of a year, and we were really trying to understand we went in it with such an open mind. We just wanted to understand their financial life, pure and simple. And we had a big focus on financial services. But as we looked at the data, what we saw was just huge ups and downs, big swings in people's income and big swings in people's spending. And it led us to spend a lot of time trying to understand volatility, which is really that idea of ongoing ups and downs in your financial life. And we talk about volatility so much in terms of um, the stock market, right? You hear about ups and downs in our overall economy, um, but people really experience those same ups and downs in their own little personal economy.
0: And what's interesting is that it's not just the folks that are living paycheck to paycheck or making minimum wage. We're talking also people who make you know, significant salaries. This is not unique to any particular income group.
1: Yeah, that's really true. Um, It's really a result of changes in our economy and changes in how people work. So, I know you talk about and think a lot about the gig economy and how people can generate a side hustle and make extra money on top of their paycheck. So, that's some of it. Um, But it's also the case that people who have full-time work nonetheless have ups and downs and how much they earn in that full-time job. So, of course, people who earn tips or work on commission, but um, it's also people who work retail. You know, More and more companies have gotten really efficient in knowing exactly how many um, staff people they need on the floor at any given moment. And they'll send people home when demand for their services is low. So, even people who work allegedly, right, full-time full time doesn't necessarily guarantee steadiness
0: no it does not and and what i've read from your work and i've been watching your videos you know you talk a little bit about how over the course of a year these families households may make a nice salary of you know average middle class salary 65 70,000 a year on an annual basis but it's when you get down to the micro sort of day to day month to month budgeting that is where they uh, struggle you talk to over two hundred families. Can you paint a picture of who who we're talking about? We talk a lot about millionaires next door. We you know these people who live in um, obscurity but are millionaires. but then there are people who seem to be living very comfortable lives, comfortable salaries, good jobs, but they're they're struggling
1: It's really true and in a separate research study um, that my organization cfsi did we we tried to understand. The financial health of the American population. And what we found was that about a third of people with lower incomes were still financially healthy, um, right? They still could pay their bills on time. They still felt a sense of confidence and security. They could still save. And conversely, about a third of the people with incomes over $100,000 were not necessarily financially healthy. So it's not, right? So it's not only about income, right? That's a huge piece. Um, but, but with the diaries, we were, we were explicitly trying to understand middle and lower income families. So about a quarter of the families in the sample were middle class and a quarter were near poverty level. And then the rest were in between. It's probably useful to tell a story or two, right? So I think about, I think about these findings from the people we, we collected so much data, but what's really interesting is to understand a family. Um, so I talk a lot about a family that we named Sarah and Sam Johnson, you know, and we, we anonymized, of course, everything about, um, the specifics of who they are, but they're exactly what you just described, right? A middle-class household living in Ohio outside of a major city, a house, two cars, um, both Sam and Sarah work full time. Um, but when we asked Sarah what her main financial goal is, she said it was to pay all her bills on time and in full, hmm. right? Because right. it's just this, for her, this constant sense of juggling, of, you know, I'm late on my mortgage this month, so next month I'm going to have to pay it double. And then the month, you know, that then I'm going to have to skip my cell phone bill to be able to afford to do that. And it's, it's really because for them, the cost of living has risen faster than incomes, which is the case for lots of people.
0: Yes. Yeah, that... Is true. I mean, looking over just the course of 15 years, I started out at a job making $18 an hour. That job still pays around $18 oh, an hour. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, last I checked, you know, the price of milk and housing and college and gas did not stay steady. So that is, I think, uh, an important point to make. And so even if you're making $100,000 a year and you have two kids and you're both working, there are so many, not only Rising costs, but unexpected costs too, right? Talk about that and how that's playing a role in income fragility, or rather, financial fragility. This uh, inability to uh, plan and budget and have an emergency account for things like, you know, uh, a medical bill or your car breaking down.
1: Yeah, it's really true. And and Sam and Sarah are, are a really good example of that. So they. Um, have health insurance through their works but you know health insurance it's not only about if you're covered it's how big your deductible and what's your copay and how much of the premium do you pay and all those numbers have gotten worse even for many people even though more people are covered now than than were many years ago right so um So Sam and Sarah, when we first got to know them at the beginning of the diaries year, they already had $8,000 in medical debt and they didn't have any real hope of paying it down. What was heartbreaking to me is at some point, you know, they had it on a care credit card and at some point um the credit card company decided to just forgive that debt for go getting it back and sarah was actually disappointed about that because she wanted to pay it down and then have access to that credit in the future because she knew other things would happen over time um in the year that we got to know them like on top of that medical debt then they of course had a car that needed repair and re- to be replaced which is you know just part of owning a car um they had a leak in their house so they had house repairs to make normal stuff right and then they had good financial shocks too like their oldest um Sarah's oldest child from a previous marriage graduated from high school the year of the diaries and he was some you know she had had him when she was very young and had to raise him on her own and he was a special needs kid and he graduated as valedictorian of his class which is just wow, awesome, right? Yes. It was such a huge moment for them. So, of course, they wanted to throw a graduation party, which mm. is not crazy to me, right? It's a just yeah. part of life, but it's also a financial shock. So they had all these expenses over time. You know, It just wasn't a steady financial picture at all. Um, eventually, when we caught up with them after the conclusion of the study, as we were writing the book, um, they had had to declare bankruptcy.
0: I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, when do these families get a break? You know, when they get to celebrate life like like, like they should, like they should be able to enjoy their hard work and their efforts and they are making money. And it almost feels like this idea of, you know, the American dream or ful- a life fulfilled is something that is a luxury to many of these families. Um what's some good stuff that you discovered with these families? I mean, I would love to sign, maybe talk now about how they're finding solutions, getting mm-hmm. ahead in some ways that I know a lot of this will have to depend on policy changing, but uh, on an individual basis, what are some of these families doing to try to you know, improve their lifestyle and their and their situation?
1: Oh, so many things. I'm really glad you asked that because it's not... Um, it's not all a story of hardship. It's just, I, I think the American dream is a story of struggle, but it's a story that uh, often, not always, but often has a happy ending, right? So Sarah um, continues to be, you know she's just all, often top of mind for me. She, um, two things. One, she, you know, she was the first to say, life's not all about money. And I know you think a lot about and talk a lot about on this show, like what is the purpose of having a steady financial life in the first place? And she's really clear that yes, her life has financial anxiety, but it's all a it means to an end. And her overall, her life has a lot of um, positive movement. So during this same diary's year that she was struggling financially, she had gone back to college herself. She graduated from college at forty and started a master's degree program. She was looking for higher paying jobs. So part of it is about, you know, expanding your skill set, investing in your own capabilities and finding ways to earn more money. That's that was part of many of the family strategies. But we also saw lots of creative um, solutions to near term financial problems. Um, So one another family, for example, um, found it really hard to save you know, putting money aside and not spending it. It's just, it requires discipline. It can be tough to do. So this mom's strategy was to buy in bulk, which was cheaper, of course, and then stash away more than she needed of all sorts of things in her pantry. She said she just found it easier to save with, you know, shampoo and toothpaste and pork chops in her freezer than Mm -hmm. to put aside cash and I think we heard a lot of stuff like that, like where people know themselves well enough to set up some system that works for them.
0: Right. And largely, do these families and households believe that it's entirely up to them or are they hoping for external help and change? Oh, it's such a good
1: question. You know, we, we did ask people, um, if they thought they had the same opportunities that generations before them if they thought that they had a fair shot you know so at some point we asked you know is, is your is your financial well-being more um the result of you or are events outside of your control and you know people often feel like it is in their control and they and they feel like they they can um affect what um you know, they can affect their their financial outcomes, even if they see that that there are challenges that are just not theirs to solve.
0: Well, right. There was a recent New York Times uh, feature uh, that Ron Lieber wrote, and he's been a guest on the show, and he's the personal finance um, editor at the New York Times. And it was all about the trade-offs that we make in our lives, right? The financial trade-offs. There are choices that we make and – the money follows uh, or doesn't, and sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it isn't, but it but it is a fact of your financial life that when you make one decision, you are basically not making another. you' are leaving if you're saying yes to something, it means you're saying no to something else,
1: yeah, you know, I can't think of anyone that I got to know personally through this study who didn't think about those trade offs in some way, didn't have some plan for the future um so I'm thinking about a a woman. I got to know in California, who was near retirement, and she had this whole waterfall in her head about how she was going to afford her life in retirement. So it was she owned her house free and clear, but she well she had paid down her mortgage, I should say, but she still had a big home equity line of credit. And it's just as an aside, it was so interesting that you know she really thought of those things so differently. Um, you know she wanted to have fewer pieces of debt outstanding. so she paid down the mortgage just because she could. Um, the home equity line of credit was a big chunk of money. And even though it was a higher interest rate, um, she didn't feel like she was within sight of paying that down. So um, she didn't, so arguably like not the best financial choice, right? She was was sort of screaming out for a refinance probably instead. Um, But she had this waterfall in her head about, you know, she was going to no longer have her income from her work so she was going to monitor her expenses really closely to see if it, if she could cover, she thought she could probably cover everything. Um, and that's why she wanted to have one less bill. You know, she was busy making sure she had fewer details to track, but she had this whole set of events she thought would put, she'd put in place, like either she'd still be able to afford her house post-retirement or not. If she couldn't, she was going to go get part-time work. She felt really confident about exactly what part-time work she could find. Or she was going to sell her house and move to a cheaper neighborhood since she no longer needed to get to work. And so she didn't have to worry about a commute anymore. But it was right this whole series of things. And often you hear that from people, right? This series of choices they think that they need to make and the trade-offs they need to make. What was interesting to me, though, was that a consistent theme was some element of needing to wait and see. Like seeing the numbers on a spreadsheet wasn't enough for this particular woman to feel confident she'd be able to support herself in retirement. She had done that math. She had that spreadsheet, but she still felt like, well, I'm still going to have to wait and see how it goes.
0: Hmm. And is that something that you found was different between the genders? I don't know.
1: know, We didn't look at it quite that way. It would be a really good follow-up question to go back to our data and do. I should say um, the financial diaries was really a repeat in some ways of research that had been done in the developing world using this same research methodology. And, um, the bankable frontier associates that did, who's done a lot of that international work has gone back at their international to look at their international data sets to see if it's different with women led versus male led households. And there's a really interesting takeaway from that, which was around how important financial networks are, right? So, or social networks are. So we have this false model, I think, in our heads that that people manage their money individually, right? It's me and my bank. But in reality, we're in financial relationship with so many other people. And those relationships affect our fragility or our resilience a great amount. In our study, for example, only 5% of the study participants had no financial interaction with somebody else during the study. Everyone else was either borrowing or saving with a friend or lending money to a family member. And so what they found in this international work was that women tend to really nurse their horizontal network, their peer group network, whereas men tend to nurse their vertical network, their suppliers and customers. Hmm. And it was and you know, they were looking at sort of small business holders, right? Think like sole proprietors. And it's, but it, it, that rang true to me in terms of the the way men and women sort of internalize their peer groups um, and who we might go to for help about money, who we might be interconnected with about money.
0: So with women, it's more, they're looking for more familiarity, like their friend group, their network, their family. Yeah. It was
1: sort of a, a takeaway around um, whether you're more invested in, yes, your your boss, your suppliers, your customers, right? That sort of, up and down movement of money through your life versus I'm going to lend, um, some money to my neighbor and she'll lend money back to me when she needs it and she has it. Right. And
0: I don't know if you'd see that same thing in the U S um, maybe, maybe we are a hodgepodge of cultures here. So it's possible there are influences all over, Separate from writing this book, you also work at CFSI, where you're really at the forefront of looking at and um, exploring all these new innovations when it comes to financial services and mobile applications. What's new that is getting you excited? Because on the show, we have talked a lot about Digit and Acorns and a, a host of apps and websites that are helping folks save more, invest more on the go, taking into account, you know, behavioral psychology, maybe not knowing specific things, but in terms of the kinds of technology that you're seeing that are kind of becoming, you know, down the line, what, what's, uh, what can we look for?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, and God, there's so much. And I am really excited about technology. I feel like that's going to be a big piece of the answer here because part of what you're seeing, even with, from why did I describe is that this is hard math for people to do on their own. You know, it's, it's hard concepts for people to do entirely on their own. And as technology changes and evolves and we have more data and predictive analytics, you can help, you can really give people better and different advice so I know you were involved with the first, first challenge that we ran through our financial solutions yes. lab.
0: I moderated a, it was basically like a, an American idol <laughs> for financial <laughs> app developers. Um, and, exactly. Yeah. And y- your organization selected a host of them, maybe six or seven of them to incubate along with Chase Bank. Um, mm-hmm. And some of those players included Digit, very established companies that we now know and trust.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so we're, we're now in our third year of that challenge and the due date is soon. So I should say, if there's anybody in the audience who is a FinTech entrepreneur, you should go and look yeah. up the Financial Solutions Lab challenge. This year, the challenge is all around, it, it's really broad. It's, it's sort of anything in financial health. And particularly if you have a solution that focuses on traditionally underserved populations. We want to hear about it. So if you're got a new service that helps older Americans or Americans in rural communities or Americans from, um, for African-American or Latino, we're particularly interested. But, you know, I think I I am really enthused by um, Digit, for example, you know, exactly in this way, like they, because they're tracking, The ups and downs in your income and siphoning off money to save without you thinking about it, they really are a perfect financial product for somebody who has income volatility. Um, I'm really excited about Even, who I would Mm -hmm. also describe as really being smart about the use of data to track their customer's financial life and then help them smooth it out.
0: Right. This is great for folks who say, like you mentioned earlier, work in retail or work at a job that is hourly and may not be consistent hours every week. They work 35 one week, 40 another, 20 another, nothing in one week, and they still have their recurring bills. So even essentially extends you uh, an advance knowing kind of what your average paycheck turns out to be. And that really, I think for a lot of working class America is a huge help.
1: It really is. Yeah. And, and I think um, I'm also really excited about, you know, from this most recent group of lab um, cohort participants, a company called EarnUp, where also, again, they're sort of mm-hmm. intelligently following your income ups and downs and then helping you pay down debt in moments when you're flush, which I think is really smart.
0: So, Rachel, you know, you have such an important job. You have such a and we were talking earlier about how, you know, when we both took maternity leave, we rushed back to work. Not because we necessarily had to, but we like our work. We really enjoy our work. And I think you are so entrenched in the financial world in a in a unique way, you know, getting to see how people live their lives and the innovations that are coming through the pipelines. And curious to know how you found yourself in this place. Maybe let's take it back to our younger, our wonder years, <laughs> which by the way just started Aww. playing on Netflix. I just saw see, oh, like wow. the first episode of Wonder Years ever. <laughs> it's a, a masterpiece. Fantastic.
1: Oh my God, I'm going to have to go back and watch it yeah. and have my kids watch it.
0: It's a whole other appreciation when you watch it in your 30s versus like when you were 50, you know, 12. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but tell us a little bit about Rachel growing up and, and your financial influences then and how they may have shaped where you have led your career today.
1: Yeah, well, I hope my parents listen because I I grew up in a household that was just phenomenal about teaching money. I really was, and it's it's not something that most families talk about. Right? It's it's not in some families it's outright taboo, but in lots of families it's just not what people even consider dinner conversation. But my mom and dad both really actively taught money concepts. So my mom. Um, when she opened, when she had me and my sister open check, um, savings accounts as kids, she said any money we put in our savings account, she would double, you know, so my grandma would give me $10 for my birthday. And if I saved it, it was 20 automatically. She really was trying to teach how important it is to save. And my dad would, you know, was happy to say a penny saved is a penny earned. But I also, like, as I got older, I had to submit a budget. So for I was a terrible shopper, like really unpleasant to shop with, because I'm always looking for the exact right thing. And so instead of going to shop with me, my mom would have me submit a budget. So you know, as in sixth grade or fifth grade or whatever, and I'd say, you know, I'd have to say for summer I need five pairs of shorts and three t-shirts or whatever it was, and and I had to put dollar amounts by it and get my budget approved, and then that was what I had to send, and she'd send me to the Wow. Like, I know it was. You weren't awesome.
0: kidding. This- <laughs> no,
1: it was amazing. And you know, she'd send me to the mall with a credit card and a note saying, "This, you know, <laughs> this girl's allowed to spend two on white this shirts, card. a pair
0: of sneakers." Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but like I, you know, and I knew that if I spent on different things, that was on me. Like that was hmm. that that was what I had to to spend. Period, which was amazing. And my dad was and still is just an incredibly sort of lucky and successful investor. So we were always talking about stocks and real estate and you know, they, my parents didn't start out with a lot of money, but they, and my dad's main job was that he was a dentist, but they were able to turn that into a much bigger financial life than, than that because they really focused on saving and investing.
0: Learning about investing as a young girl, what a gift. Because I I like to think too that my family did me a great service of opening me up to financial concepts as a young person. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of communication around money in my household growing up that was never felt, it never felt taboo. Mm -mm. Um, But investing, not to say that they shielded that for me, but it also just wasn't something that my parents really did. Um, they were immigrants, so they were more focused on education and building your wealth through real estate and working hard. And the stock market was still something that was a little more too nuanced for them, perhaps. Um, although they did do their workplace 401ks, they weren't following stocks and they weren't explaining, therefore, to me how the stock market worked. Had I kind of been more familiar with it and more comfortable with it, I think I could have just started my investments so much
1: younger. It's really true. And it's not for everyone, but I do think what you're saying is right. That if you have a comfort level with it, it's so, I don't know. And I don't know why my family was so comfortable with it in a way. my grandmother didn't go to college, um, until she was, um, until her children were grown. And, and in my family, there was a real focus on particularly we need to teach women this, which is miraculous. So like my grandmother, was smart enough to go to college, but her dad thought, why would you go to college? You know, there's, you're, you're supposed to get married. And so she went back to college as an adult woman once her kids were grown. And I think the first stock I owned was that she owned, um, she owned Bell Telephone stock. And when it broke into five different companies, right, at some point, um, the government split up that monopoly. And so if you owned, um, their stock you you got a piece of what's now Verizon and a piece of SBC and um and it split into five. And she had five grandchildren. And so she gave each of us that stock. And it was, you know, we're talking a few hundred dollars. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was just the idea that you're 13 and you can own this little piece of US West mm-hmm. that was important.
0: Yeah, David Bach, a guest on this show, tells this famous story about his grandmother, Grandma Bach taught him one of the most important principles of money when he was young little kid, they went to McDonald's. And she said, there's two types of people in the world, David. There are people who eat at McDonald's and there are people who own McDonald's. (laughs)
1: Oh my God. that's amazing.
0: And he was like, what are you talking about? And she explained the concept of stocks (laughs) to him over a Big Mac or Happy Meal in that case. And it's a story that he likes to tell because it maybe at that time, the story wasn't applicable to him, but he remembers it and he probably built a curiosity from that point on. It's really an amazing story. It's phenomenal. All right. So Rachel, we don't have a whole lot of time left here, but I would like to ask you some so money fill in the blanks. And this is when I start a sentence and you finish it. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Got it. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks. The first thing I would do is. So clearly
1: I would set up some kind of a foundation to give lots of it away, but I have to, because I, you know, I don't need that much money, but I have to admit that I would also outsource So many things in my life, I have to say. Right? I don't think you know. If I could skinny my life down to work, kids, family, friends, hobbies, it would be amazing. And I don't don't think we give, you know, it takes a lot of time to run a household and keep um, just the basics of life management going. Mm -hmm. Need to give that time a lot more.
0: Agreed. Good. Good answer. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. So um, I guess it's a theme for me. I
1: do spend money on um, a personal assistant, which sounds extravagant, but I'm a working mom and I figured out when my second child was born, here's my one piece of advice for you, for you probably do this already. But I, when my second child was born, I realized I really, I, like I can only work and and be a mom and barely have time for anything else. And I realized that it would cost me just the same amount of money to hire a babysitter as it would to... Um, pay someone to help me with other stuff, and that I would rather be with my kids versus, you know, going to the DMV to get my car registration up to date. Um, really, and it's, it's that's the so best, weird. <laughs> I know, I know. Why? Why? It's so fun there. Um, it's the best money I spend mm-hmm. every year. You know, it's it's really phenomenal and and sort of a game changer. I started out actually with an offshore assistant. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a super expensive. Thing, but it can dramatically change your life.
0: Well, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is trade-offs, right? Figuring mm-hmm. out where your money is best spent, and based on um, not necessarily absolutes, but personal preferences. You know how you envision a fulfilled life, and um, and and it's in one way to stay in control of your financial destiny, and you know feel in control of your your I guess your money. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up. Sounds like you learned more than the average kid, but if there was one thing that was left out, what was it? One one thing that you wish you had learned.
1: It's tough. You know, I I did learn a lot about money itself, money management, which was really lucky. I don't think I was as conscious as I am now about how much money is really about, as you just said, like trade-offs and values. I knew it was about trade-offs in terms of, I can buy this versus that. I don't think I thought about it that much as in terms of a trade-off about my values and my time until I got older. Um, you know, so my first, my first work experiences were really about making money and, and I knew it wasn't quite in, it wasn't quite in accordance with my values. I wanted to value time and mission more um, but it took me a little while to get there.
0: Yeah. I do think that's something that comes with age, that comes with experience. Although I will say it might also be generational because my younger brother, who's a millennial, I think his his cohort of young workers, they aren't just interested in the paycheck anymore or the mm-hmm. benefits, quote unquote, that they want to work in an environment where they feel valued and there's you know maybe an emphasis on giving back. And so companies are now starting to rethink you know, their mission and how to attract this younger, you know, this younger workforce that isn't all about the money.
1: Yeah. It's something we can learn from the millennials. I'm a Gen Xer and we didn't, we weren't really, (laughs) I I mean, Gen X should be renamed the ignored generation. It's not really clear
0: what Gen X is about in the same way, but I don't think we learned that um, early, they're about Pearl Jam and <laughs> MC Hammer pants, and
1: uh, exactly,
0: yeah. Um, all right, last but not least, I'm Rachel Schneider, and I'm so money because I'm so
1: money because I spend my time thinking about these issues, and I want to and I, and expanding our knowledge base about it, and expanding my knowledge base about it. I'm not done at all.
0: You are not. And we're happy for that because your work is amazing. And everybody check out the Financial Diaries. Thank you so much for your work, Rachel. And we'll be keeping an eye on all the news that comes from your team. Oh, thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun. I'm so glad I could join you. Thanks so much, Rachel Schneider, for joining us on So Money. To learn more about her work, go to csfi.org. Her book is called The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. She is on Twitter at Rachel Schneider. If you missed any of this, just hop over to somoneypodcast.com where you can click on the audio, download the transcript. Also, leave me a question for the Friday episodes of So Money. Just click on Ask Farnoosh and send away. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money.